Hello, and welcome to On the Marie Curie Couch, the podcast that aims to break down taboos and start open, honest conversations about death and dying. I'm Jason Davidson. I'm a social worker by profession, and I've worked in palliative care, hospice care, and bereavement support services for more than a decade. Each episode, we'll be speaking to a well-known guest to find out about how they feel about their own mortality and how their personal experience of bereavement has shaped the way they live their life. Today, I'm on the Marie Curie couch with Tara Fitzgerald. Tara's a British actress who's appeared in feature films, television shows, on radio and on the stage. Her film credits include Sirens, and The Englishman Who Went Up a Hill But Came Down a Mountain, both with Hugh Grant, as well as Brastoff. Since 2007, Tara's also appeared in more than 30 episodes of the BBC TV series, Waking the Dead, and played the role of Celice Baratheon in the hugely popular HBO series, Game of Thrones. Tara Fitzgerald, welcome to the Marie Curie Couch. Thanks, Jason. How are you? I'm well. I'm doing well. I'd like to start today, Tara, by asking if you could tell me about a significant bereavement that you've experienced in your life. Yeah, sure. Um, Well, I lost my father when I was um, 11. So this is going quite a way back now. Um, And that was... I mean, death is always significant, isn't it? And and in fact, your relationship with death or one's relationship with death changes so much over the years, it seems to me. And uh, it, it also has been my experience that when I've lost people more recently, it's almost reactivated sometimes the first experience of death or it certainly, it, it doesn't catalogue it, but it, it, it brings it up again or it can do. Um, in some ways, in positive ways, you know, there are very positive things and about losing people. And I know that can relate to the legacy. Um, but, but I think the thing that was so uh, difficult for me to process at 11 was that it seemed to happen, you know, too soon. You know, I suppose it wasn't something that as an 11 year old I was prepared for in any way, Um, partly because of the times we were in, partly because it doesn't happen very often, partly because I don't think, um, I think it's very complicated preparing children for for death. I think it's it's a very sensitive, can be a very sensitive subject. Um, So I think what tends to happen is that one does it in reaction, you know, as, as an older person, you might only respond to a child's loss once it happens, if that makes sense. But I didn't, I, it happened out of the blue. He, he, he it's, it's a sort of complex story because I didn't live with him. He, he was no longer with my mother, but um, I saw him on holidays and, you know, the weekends when he could. And um, uh, he had remarried. He was with my stepmother. So she relayed the information about his death to us to my mother and my mother passed it on to me and my sister um and we were initially told by her that 
um, he'd been killed in a car crash. And that's what I believed for, for many years. And, and uh, I understand now why um, we were told that. But, but what transpired was that at the age of 19, we learned that he actually had committed suicide. Right. So, yeah, for all sorts of reasons, um, very, very solid reasons, my stepmother had decided that she couldn't um, tell us the truth about his death. Um, what, what that meant was that in one way, I had to re reprocess the death eight years later. And that, that was very strange again. You know, suicide is still quite taboo, I think, you know, and it's a very rich subject, you know, it's a very, and it's a very sensitive subject. And I know is something that has come up, or it seems to me has come up a lot more um, in public awareness over the last few years. But when I was 11, I think I, I didn't really have a, a hold on it at all. But then I didn't know that was how he died. So, so anyway, I hope that's making sense. It's, it is, it's, absolutely. Yeah. Also, when I found out he had died, it, my first response was to sort of, um, I remember telling my best friend and I sort of laughed. I was so uncomfortable with the, with the, um, the news. <laughs> Um, I laughed and uh, she said, um, I remember she said, why are you laughing? And I said, I don't know. I, I, I don't know. It, 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 I was so baffled by it, I suppose. Um, but then over the next sort of uh, that day, my, my teacher, um, they were told at school and my teacher took me to one side. She was a brilliant woman. I don't know if she's still with us, but um, I hope she is. Um, and she said that she had lost someone very close to her, very young, her mother, and um, how she understood it. And she, she gave me enormous um, strength and courage and, and um, wisdom. But then over the next few months, I remember talking to people again. I didn't really know how to process it. And I found it very uncomfortable when people said, and what about your dad? What's your father do? You know, those kind of questions. I didn't know how to answer the question. Um, but when I did, sometimes I felt this rather odd feeling of sort of, I don't know how to describe it quite, but sort of specialness. specialness. <laughs> um, and I, I felt very guilty about that. I thought, oh, this is something unusual. This is something um, that makes me a bit different, which I desperately wanted to be, you know, to stand out. And so I had this feeling that, yeah, that it gave me something di different to other people or, or would make me memorable. <laughs> um, that's being very honest, you know. Um, it, it, but then that also, as I say, that also troubled me, the fact that I perceived it in that way, you know. But I'm aware now of, I've looked at these things quite a lot in my life, and I'm aware now of how we process things, how we are unable to process things the way the mind works and um, the way that one finds, you know, uh, to, to deal with things, you know. Sometimes it's not what you might read in a book as the appropriate way, but in actual fact, there isn't a right way <laughs> of 
accessing death. I was just thinking about that, you know, when you were talking about kind of is, is what I'm feeling or experiencing right or is it wrong? Yeah. And, and, and at times it sounds like it, it felt like both for you. Yes, exactly. And where do we get that information from? Where do we get the answers to those questions from? Who's talking about it around us and what are they telling us? Yeah, exactly, exactly. And I think also children are very smart, you know, really on a deep level. Um, they're instinctive and a lot of times that's knocked out of us, isn't it, mm. um, as we grow older. But I reckon that I felt something wasn't quite straight about the circumstances surrounding his death, you know, that, that I hadn't been told everything or, or that there was a feeling of more to come. It didn't satisfy something in me. Um, so I couldn't, I, I didn't feel I could reconcile it quite if one ever can and it was so sudden and as you say came out of the blue and how how can anyone be prepared for that I was thinking also Tara about through grief creating meaning for ourselves from the death and the loss and how I guess, I'm I'm guessing you you did that from the age of 11 to 19. Yeah. And then, of course, at 19, the story changed. Exactly. Can you tell us a bit more about that when you were 19? Yeah, so I suppose consciously in some ways and unconsciously in others that one builds, as you say, this story and a narrative and it becomes a sort of anchor. Um, I really feel that you know, in order to be free in life, certainly for me, I need to have some solids or in order to relinquish control, because I, like the best of them, tend to be quite controlling. But in order to try and let go of those things, let go of that, I'm trying to run the show. Um, I, I need a few strong anchors. And those are the sort of let's say, the key events that have happened in one's life. Um, and those are, are mostly defining, you know, I would say defining moments. And so I had built my narrative based on the fact that my father had been killed in a, a car crash. And that was a, you know, that, that felt very random. I reconciled it by saying those are the things that happen in life, you know, that was really, really tragic. He was in the wrong place at the wrong time you know to then learn he had killed himself meant that obviously I had to break apart that narrative uh, break apart to some degree my own sense of self um, because um, that goes into a very different territory which is um, around mental illness and um, it became about how then to understand my father in a new way you know towards what what had driven him to take his own life, you know? And then on from that, what has that handed on to me? What have I inherited, you know, um, from him? Do, do I, in my clumsy way, let's say, do I have that in my gene then, you know? Am I someone who might also suffer from some sort of ideation or, um, have a depressive 
tendency or, you know, any of these mental conditions that, that I understand would have led to him committing suicide. I mean, even the, the thing committing suicide sounds, you know, the language around it is quite um, hard, isn't it? <laughs> you know, it's quite informal, I think, and, um, and difficult. And I, I, I read a, so I read a, a brilliant book by Alavarez, which was very helpful to me. I then went towards reading, and I, I guess because I'm uh, an actor and I tend towards romantic <laughs> understandings, and, and that's been very helpful for me, you know, in my work, and but also in in ways of dealing with things. I've found a lot of solace in literature and art, and you know, I found help in appropriating difficult subjects in those ways. So I, I went towards a lot of reading, um, the romantic poets, you know, people who had suffered, as, as I could see it, suffered with something similar to my father, whilst at the same time, not overly trying not to overly romanticize him, um, trying to see him for who he was. You know, I think that's something probably that's only happened later in my life, that I, I couldn't not have him as a romantic figure because I found it too painful, um, which in a way wasn't fair to him. You know, a human, you have to take people on, human, on a human level, you know, you have to appreciate them on a human level. And I think then they can transcend, but, but I found it very difficult to see him for who he was. I, I felt so many different things, and, and I'm sure you'll know this, that things don't happen in uh, linear ways in life. You know, you, as you said earlier, you can feel both things or many things at the same time. And it depends where you, you are in a day, how you land on, you know, and, and things can be triggers and, and surprise you. But I suppose that I've only, as I said, I've only recently learned how to really see him as a, as a man, see him as a, a father who struggled, who found things, you know, found living quite difficult, obviously and didn't know how to continue them with any sort of judgment. Uh, I'm not sure if I ever really judged. I felt angry at, at, at certain points, you know, angry for the, for the loss and, and for his not being able to make it. Um, and angry at, at, at my not knowing him, you know, my, my, my loss of opportunity to know him. But I don't know, I mean, is that judgmental? I don't know if I consider that judgmental. I feel I've always been quite compassionate around his death. You know, I feel I've always been quite understanding around him needing to go. Mm. You talked um, at the beginning about how death changes as time goes on and as we get older. And um, I kind of, what I took from that was um, you were talking about as, as you evolve, then the experience of it evolves with that. Yes. And you've started to talk a bit about um, how in recent years your, uh, you know, it, it, it's changed again for you as how you see your dad as a man. Um, and so I just wanted to ask if you could tell me firstly your dad's name and then maybe a bit about him and what kind of man was he? Yeah, um, his name was Michael and um, he was um, 
a real free spirit and um, had a, a rocking sense of humor. He was very uh, mischievous, <laughs> I would say. <laughs> um, he was very beautiful. He was very, he was very um, handsome. Uh, he was very good at things, not just naturally good at things. He was very, he was very sensitive, could connect with people, could make people laugh quite easily, it seemed. He also had this huge um, reservoir. I mean, the, the thing he's given me, if, if we talk about legacy, is, is a hug. And honestly, I've never felt a hug like that, that was so um, completely embracing and filled with warmth and laughter and, and seemed to express his whole character. Um, in some ways, I think I've been searching for that hug, you know, since, which is a bit of a, uh, a grail, isn't it? He, uh, he was very good at languages and I'm hopeless. <laughs> I'm trying to, um, he was an adventurer. He was very brave. He, you know, he had a real wanderlust. So he went off and traveled and he tried new things and he wasn't, um, wasn't bound by money. He went out and he, he traveled, you know, South America. He went into the, the hills and he met, you know, tribes. And he, he really, he tried to cross boundaries, if you like. And he, he was a very good teacher. He was, he was very good with young people. He understood young people. And he was an artist. I have a couple of um, very small things of his and he was talented. And um, I know he wanted that more than anything and was frustrated because he couldn't quite get to do it in the way that I, I feel he needed to. Obviously, I'm aware, too, that some of these things are my projection, mm. <laughs> you know. Um, but, but these are also things that I, you know, that I felt as a child. Mm -hmm. um, so a lot of these are authentic, you know. I loved how when you were describing the, the the hug um you know that you got it's just making me making me think about sort of that loss and legacy can be so physical as yeah. well as emotional yeah um, um, yes which is amazing really isn't it yes it's like um it's like an imprint that you wouldn't well it's good for me not to be too academic about things, Jason. You know, it's good for me to not always stay in my mind. And so, yes, the imprint of something like that is really, it's transformative. If, if you know, it's, it's really transformative. Um, if I can, you know, as a leg, if I can pass on one hug <laughs> with one tenth of what he had in his, then that'll be something. <laughs> Some of life's questions are harder than others. If you or a loved one are facing end of life or bereavement, Marie Curie is here to listen and help. Call our free support line on 0800 090 2309 or start a web chat by visiting mariecurie.org.uk forward slash support. I'd like to 
talk a bit more about your experience of bereavement and grief in the sense of what um so so um what we do know is lots of people who listen to this podcast find the podcast in itself something helpful for them if they're grieving um you know or, or bereaved also i think some of the um things that have helped the guest on the podcast as well with their experience so you've talked about um reading books poetry um is there anything else that helped you and has helped and continues to with your experience of bereavement and grief yeah um so art in general mm. definitely i think um yes reading but then i think also connecting with with works of art you know visual because i think things that are expressed in paint for instance can describe something to you that perhaps you it's too complicated to measure, too complicated to articulate, but can provide some understanding or illumination. Um, or certainly I found that for me. Mm. The nature, of course, you know, you know, if, if one is able to get out and just breathe outside and inhale good air, you know, good air whilst you are feeling moved or upset or troubled or overly excited, agitated, or, you know, again, I think I'm, I'm using these labels and I, more and more I'm trying not to give myself too many labels. I know that I'm very self-critical, for instance, and that I can quickly say, oh, you're being too much of something, Tara. You know, you're being, you're too much for people. You're being too loud or you're being too excitable you're being and actually breathing can help with that mm -hmm. um taking a walk as i said so sometimes if i've been too much <laughs> i you know i might take myself out for a walk around the block even um that can help but also within that trying or moving away from saying i'm too much you know and going this is something speaking to me and this is something I need to work with rather than tamp, tamp down or, or criticize this is this is telling me something it doesn't have to be venerated but it has to be at least heard or honored or say respected so I think the internal dialogue is really important you know how we speak to ourselves is really key towards self-compassion obviously uh, and towards process of loss, which may take, you know, you may think, I think I did, I have thought with people I've lost, oh, I've, I figured that one out, or I've put that one to bed, or, or whatever language I might use. And actually, bam, you know, I see something, or I meet somebody from the past, and it all comes flooding back again. So to, to allow that to happen, not be hard on oneself, you know, about right ways and wrong ways of doing things. And, and language is so important in that. And words are so important. The value of words, you know. Absolutely. I think self-compassion is so difficult when you're grieving. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, even back to what we were saying earlier about that kind of right and wrong and, which way to do it and um you know yeah. kind of, i'm not getting it right and i'm doing it wrong that's um, it and yeah. and yeah how do we talk to 
ourselves in the right way and yeah care for ourselves and look after ourselves and as you describe you know that inner dialogue yeah and also tied in with that is the should have and could have done more mm. you know that's all part of it i think the why why you know with my father why wasn't i enough you know was one question has been a question why wasn't i enough to keep him here with other losses I've had, I've experienced in my life. What could I have done? You know, what should I have done? If I had done this, would they still be here? I did that wrong. They might have had another two years, three years, if I'd understood something differently, if I'd been a better person, I guess it comes down to, you know, if I'd been a better person, they would have been here for longer in very finite terms, very simple terms. But I know that's not true, you know. It's also that, you know, trying to tread the line of it's not about me, you know, it's not about me, whilst also going, it is about me at the same time and how I can help and how I can process and how I can um, take on whatever I'm trying to take on and live my life, you know, uh, being sensitive to, to the idea that, you know, the person dying or who has died has undergone something sometimes incredibly difficult to deal with. Um, you know, being sensitive to that and also being sensitive to oneself, as you say, being compassionate to oneself and, and letting oneself be in the picture too. <laughs> I was just thinking there about that, that, you know, some of those questions of what could I have done differently can be just so painful. Yeah. 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 Like really sort of the deepest questions, you know, that one can ask of oneself and um, the most, uh, what's the word I want, the, the most are unfulfilling in a way because there isn't, there isn't an answer, really. That's not going anywhere. <laughs> you, know? you know, we could all have done something differently, but actually, would it really have changed anything? You know, one, for me, I have to say, the only sort of sucker, if you like, I can find is saying it, it wouldn't have made a difference. <laughs> You know, this was the time. This was the time. And, and like it or not, <laughs> you may have shifted one degree here or there, but, but uh, accept that this was the, that person's time to go. And acceptance is the only way, really. I'm just thinking about anybody or everybody who's listening. Um, now and and I just yeah I kind of yeah almost want to say rewind that bit you know for a minute because it's such a strong important key message and I think it's a good one to replay isn't it um for yourself you know yeah yeah um one of the other aims of this podcast horror is that we um you know we want people to talk more about death and dying and bereavement and loss um um, i say we it's charity marie curie um you know because we know that when people do have open conversations about it they will often have um better outcomes 
afterwards. So one of the things we talk about to people is planning for the future and, and some of those practical things you can do, like writing a will or expressing your funeral wishes, um, letting people know what you want. And I wanted to ask, firstly, whether you think about your own death. And if so, have you considered some of those practical things? Yeah. I mean, to, to say that absolutely what you've also mentioned is talking to people. And that is another thing that has helped enormously, mm-hmm. you know, sharing with other people, because I, I do notice, and I, I'm sure, I'm sure you have too. Uh, I'm sure it's been a common experience that, you know, people can only take, it seems so much talk about death, you know, before people say things like, oh, this is a bit heavy, or, oh, I don't think we want to be here for too long, or, or something along those lines, or how did we get into this conversation? Or, you know, and, and when, you, when you're trying to talk straight about something like death, and you get a response like that, it makes you feel really shamed, <laughs> you know, or it's made me feel shamed, shameful. Let's say I've I felt ashamed of myself, mm-hmm. and and I think it, again talking to people who are sympathetic, who perhaps have a common experience, even if it's not the same, or even just an understanding, an insight, is absolutely key to to health and to help, um, and to making one feel that one isn't alone. You know, you're not alone. It's so important to know that. So I do think about death sometimes because it's part of my work. You know, it's a fun way, weirdly. It's a, it's a, or it's a safe, it can be fun. You know, it can be fun to, to explore a subject like death in a safe environment in my work. Mm-hmm. You know, um, it can feel safer and more fun than in real life. So I'm very lucky for that. So, um, I can consider things within a boundaried way that I might not dare to do in real life. I'm very lucky. Um, but also that enables me, I hope, to get a, a better grip on it and, and a, a more common human understanding so that I can relay that message in what I do. I hope that's what I do. Um, so then I also do think about, my, yeah, because I'm in my mid-50s now, so I think, I don't know if this is true for everybody, but perhaps, you know, there's a, a sense of going over, of going over the, the 50s, something. And then you're like, I've reached the top of the hill and now I'm going down the hill or something like, I don't know. It sounds a bit silly, but so I'm, I'm evolving, I'm evolving, I'm evolving. And now I'm sort of declining and I'm heading towards death is the way I, I think mm. I picture it. And so I better prepare. And I, though that doesn't, because... Death can strike at any moment, you know, it's, it, it can be a totally random occurrence. So um, it, it doesn't really, it's not logical, should we say, but somehow I have that. So yes, the preparation or my perception of death is changing. And, and um, I'm aware too that people around me, my contemporaries and older are passing with more frequency. You know, and that's something that would have been, say, very uncommon in my teens and, and was when my father died. And, and obviously, in, you know, my 20s. But now 
I recognize that it's going to become more common and it's something that I have to get accustomed to. That is the way it is. Um, uh, it's natural, it's nature, you know. Um, so, so there's that recognition, but also practically, yes, things like will and legacy in a, in a, a, a tangible sense, you know, tangible assets. Um, one has to consider that. I don't want to leave a whole load of stuff for people to have to <laughs> wade through. You know, that, for instance, is one thing that I would say that I'm, I'm, I'm aware I accrue a lot of stuff. And I'm aware that when people in my family have died, often they have had a lot of things. And that, that that's given a job to somebody that maybe is difficult. <laughs> you know, it can be healing too. It can be healing going through things and you do, can make one feel like, um, you know, a detective in the life of the person who has passed, you know, and, and you can reach understanding through discovery, through objects or through things, but, but also not leaving too much paperwork, I'd say. You know, it's hard. People lose someone and then they have to deal with all that paperwork. paperwork. Yeah. yeah. You know, it, it's a big job. And now, and, and now a big digital footprint as well. Oh, huge um, digital yeah. footprint. Yes, and sometimes that's beneficial, can be beneficial, as I was saying. But sometimes it's really onerous. You know, it can help people process death quietly. But sometimes it's just onerous and then cuts into someone's life in a way that perhaps isn't, isn't helpful. So, so I'm trying to be mindful of that to make things as simple as possible for the people I love. Mm -hmm. I'm not achieving, I'm not achieving it, you know, currently, but that's what I'm aiming for. <laughs> um, sticking with that, you've talked, um, you've talked about legacy and I'd like to ask, how would you like to be remembered? Well, you know, I suppose I'd, I'd like to be remembered as um, someone who loved you know, uh, fully the people they loved, and but also um, encouraged creativity, encouraged um, people to really explore their heart. You know, I really do believe in that. I really, I think one of the saddest things I've heard or can hear is when people say, I never looked at that part of myself. I never... I always wanted to do this and I didn't do it. And that's my sadness, you know. I find that quite heartbreaking. I really do believe that it's worth trying and messing up, <laughs> you know, but giving things a go, beginning things. I'm, I'm a great procrastinator. I mean, I, I, I really am. I'm, I'm, but I also, in opposition to that, I also really believe in trying things out following your heart and being trusting your instinct uh those things i hope my work does something you know it's what i do is in you know moving image so i i'm aware it doesn't have the same or i'm conscious of the fact that it doesn't have the same um, possibilities as other forms of art and i i, I don't want to give myself anything grandiose you know I'm not being grandiose in it but I, but I hope I hope there've been some moments there might be some some moments that would continue you know that might 
illuminate something for somebody or help or entertain, you know, or move or, you know, whatever, whatever it might do that there might be, or on stage, that stage has more possibility of that, that there's a snapshot that might make someone's life a little easier or illustrate something in someone's life. Like paintings. Like paintings, yeah. Like paintings, I hope. So those things. Mm-hmm. Um, just, just two more questions just before we finish, Tora. Um, one is, um, like I've said, um, we know that people, um, you know, will either be caring for somebody with a terminal illness who are listening to this podcast and or um, will have experienced bereavement themselves. Is there anything you would say or any words you would share to somebody listening um, that, that might offer some comfort and support? Yeah, I, um, I really think it's important not to feel there's a perfect way of doing anything. That the person who you are helping or the person that you have helped um, will have benefited so hugely from that connection, from that time, from your just being there. Um, that, and those things are immeasurable, you know. Those things are transcendent. Those are, those are the, you know, to make a cup of tea for somebody, <laughs> you know, those simple things in the way they like, <laughs> you know, they may not like it the way you do it, but those simple things will just go in and change people in a way that perhaps can't be seen or measured and to, to take hold of that and trust that and feel good about it. You know, there's so much that doesn't feel that good that, you know, seize those little moments and really, really believe in them. Last question. What's it meant to you today, Tara, to be on the Marie Curie couch and have this conversation? Well, it's, I'm, I'm very, um, I really feel honoured to be asked. And um, I, you know, it, for me, it's quite hard sometimes how, how truthful can I be? I, I think I find that quite difficult. How, how truthful dare I be, mm. you know? Um, but it's, it's meant a lot. I really, I hope more than anything, it, it, my words have been beneficial, you know? I hope more than anything that uh, something I've said resonates somewhere. Um, so thank you. Thank you for having me. Tara Fitzgerald, thank you for joining me on the Marie Curie couch today. Thanks for sharing some of Michael, your father's story and your experiences. Thanks for being very open and honest. And it's a real pleasure to meet you. A pleasure for me too. Thank you. So that's all for this episode of On the Marie Curie Couch. We hope it's got you thinking about matters of life and death and perhaps starting those conversations with your own friends and family. Marie Curie's here to help. From planning ahead to coping with bereavement, you can talk through any concerns you have around the end of life with our support line team, which also includes specially trained nurses. Call us on 0800 090-2309 or search Marie Curie online. 
podcast is produced and edited by Marie Curie with support from Ultimate Sound and Vision. And the music featured is Time Lapse by Pan Oceanic. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please do like and subscribe. Thanks for listening. And until next time, goodbye.